0: A couple years ago, when first we learned that we would be electing a new bishop for Oregon, I began a conversation with Christine Schlesser, who is the director of Trinity's Iconography Institute, and with Father John Buffington, who is our master iconographer. Christine and John, in the Institute, are responsible for many of the icons you see around the cathedral. And we began a conversation about commissioning a new icon for the cathedral in honor of the new bishop. I knew where I wanted it to go, I knew I wanted it to be in this niche right behind the pulpit to kind of balance out the Trinity icon that's on the other side that was commissioned in honor of Bishop Michael's consecration 13 years ago. And I knew that I wanted the new icon to be something that a preacher might spend a moment with before climbing up into this pulpit to preach. So I asked Father John, you know, what are the traditional subjects in iconography, in the iconographic tradition, what are the right subjects that would be appropriate for a new bishop and for a preacher? We talked about St. John Chrysostom, who was a famous preacher in the fourth century, the golden-mouthed, he was called the, the patron saint of preachers. And then John suggested we look at Mary Magdalene. Who is sometimes called the first preacher, the one who, who first proclaimed the resurrection on that first Easter morning so many years ago? At this point, we had no idea who Oregon's next bishop would be. The search committee had not been formed, no applications had been received. But as soon as John suggested an icon of the myrrh bearers, these women who first gathered at the tomb to witness and to proclaim their teacher's resurrection, I knew we had found our subject. Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's what these men in dazzling clothes ask Mary and these women. And that question launches Mary Magdalene's life work. That becomes her sermon. This is her anointing. This is her vocation. The men say, He is not here. He is risen. And when they say that to her, it is not a technical term yet, right? This is a common, everyday Greek verb. Literally, the word is, He got up right? Everywhere else in the New Testament where this word occurs, and it occurs a lot, that's how we translate it, right? Mary and Joseph do it. Joseph got up. Little girls do it when Jesus raises them. The crippled man does it when Jesus healed him. The text says he got up. That's all they're saying. He got up. That is Mary's sermon. This is what she has to say, the moment that defines her life as a priest, we might say, as a prophet, a bishop, a a preacher, a leader in this earliest group of followers. She is, we might say, the first christian and this is her sermon he got up you can get up too it's a normal pedestrian word with a challenging and even slightly scandalous implication so they try to shut her up almost instantly the text is really clear about this a few verses later we read about how all the other disciples and they are all gentlemen incidentally How they all dismiss this story, the sermon of these women who have followed Jesus all the way from Galilee. These are the only followers who never never abandoned him, right? They stick with him to the end. And in the ancient world, because they're women, their testimony would have been automatically suspect. I guess that's still kind of true in some ways, or we wouldn't need the hashtag believewomen floating all over social media. Luke says, the words of these women seemed to the others an idle tale. And that's a polite way of saying that they were dismissed as deluded, histrionic, unhinged, traumatized, and maybe a little bit crazy. So Mary's sermon instantly takes on a slightly political cast, dismissed for centuries as a prostitute. In our time, Mary of Magdala and these other women at the tomb are finally getting the fair hearing that they deserved. She was no prostitute, incidentally. The historical record is very clear on this. What we know is that Mary of Magdala becomes a really significant leader, a kind of early bishop among the earliest followers of Jesus. There's a non-canonical gospel that bears her name. It's really weird. Uh, But her fingerprints are all over this tradition. Mary was a big deal. Nobody ever managed to shut Mary Magdalene up completely because she's the first one to make a connection between what she has seen and then what it's going to mean It takes all the other disciples quite a while, some of them years, decades, to work through their trauma, to understand what's happened, to begin to make sense of what they've seen, what they've experienced. There's a a meme going around on social media. Shanna shared it with me on Thursday. It's Jesus at the Last Supper, right? And he says to his followers, one of you will betray me, and four of you will get book deals. (laughs) Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? So one way that we can read these ancient book deals that these guys get, the four Gospels that made it into the New Testament, along with the dozens that didn't, one way we can understand these stories is that all of these book deals are really survivor narratives, right? These are stories told by traumatized communities who have suffered incredible violence, and they're trying to piece together the story of what has happened to them and to figure out what it means. Because trauma interrupts that process, right? We've seen this, we know this. Two years of global trauma that has shifted everything we thought we knew for certain. The first thing that trauma does is it interrupts our normal sense of the flow of time. Trauma survivors lose track of what has happened. Memory loss becomes really common. Trauma disrupts time. And it also disrupts agency. Survivors of trauma often lose their ability, temporarily at least, to see themselves as individuals with agency. It can lead to to numbness, to disassociation, disembodiment, literal loss of voice. Some trauma survivors do not speak for weeks and months after their incident. You become a person to whom something has happened rather than an actor in your own story. So the first step towards healing that kind of trauma, the kind of of trauma you experience when you see your friend being tortured and executed on a Roman cross, right? The kind of trauma you experience when people with your skin color are gunned down every day for no good reason at all. The kind of trauma you experience when your normal patterns are disrupted and your leaders fail you and your kids are spending all day on a Zoom call and you don't know who you are anymore. The first step towards healing that kind of trauma is to start putting words around what has happened to you. That's reclaiming agency, that's finding your voice, that's making sense of time and sequence and order of events. It's how we start to heal, it's how we start to make meaning. And sometimes, when a trauma survivor first begins to finally tell the story of what has happened, she can get the details a little bit wrong, sometimes major details, right? There's a, there's a theologian in New York, Serene Jones, who has done a lot of work on memory and trauma. Serene studied the oral histories of Holocaust survivors, and she talks about a survivor of the Nazi death camps who told of seeing three smokestacks against the sky every day, and knowing exactly what that smoke meant, telling the story of the smokestacks, became her way through, right? That became the thread of memory that began to allow her to bear witness to what had happened to her. And then historians looked back and discovered that there was only ever one smokestack in that particular camp. It's pretty well documented, actually. The survivor's memory, as she begins to put her story together, is full of those kinds of landmines. But the terrain that she has to engage in order to move forward towards healing is that terrain. It's a, that's the complicated thing about trauma stories. And that's really one way of understanding all that the Gospels really are. They're stories of traumatized people, stories of trauma, which ultimately, be, ultimately then become stories of healing. We don't know their names, or at least not all of them, these myrrh bearing women. You see them behind me on that icon Every writer tells this story slightly differently. Luke names three of them, so three of them is what we get in the icon. Luke names Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joanna. Other gospels talk about Mary the wife of Clopas or Mary of Bethany or Salome or Susanna. And even Luke leaves some room for doubt. He talks about all the other women who were with them who tell this story to the apostles. All of the other women. There are hundreds of them. Thousands. Countless women who have been telling this story for centuries. You see them in that icon behind me. We call them the myrrh-bearers, right? The myrrh-bearing women. That's a title that, that, first of all, ties them to death, right? They come to the tomb bearing spices. These are the, the traditional herbs for anointing the dead because they've done this before. They've been here before. They have buried their sons and their daughters and their spouses and their friends and their lovers. They're the ones who know how to mourn the ones whose lives have been marked by the the dark gift of resilience. They know how to weep. They know how to keep going. They're the queer ones, right? They're the forgotten ones, the ones who don't fit the binaries, who lurk on the margins and are ready to move in when the drama is over and the bystanders have long passed by. But this morning, rather than performing their ministrations in secret, they are given a different kind of work, to do, not the the work of grave clothes and spices and mourners, but the work of prophets, preachers, harbingers of a world that is just beginning to awaken. They're invited to tell a new story, and it's a story that the world needs to hear. We will no longer seek the living among the dead, they say. He is not here. He is not dead. He stood up. He got up. And now he's out there ahead of us, calling us forward, just like he promised he would. It's weird. It's unsettling. But these preachers will not stop talking about it. He is among us now. He has given us power. He is calling us to this, this whole different way of being in the world. And we cannot be silent. We will not sit down and shut up and be polite. We won't hide what we have always suspected was true, which is that there is nothing alive about power and control. And there never was. There's nothing life-giving about coercion and force. There's nothing determinative about fear and violence. Call it white supremacy, call it patriarchy, call it heteronormativity, or call it what it is, right? Violence. Violence and fear, the fear of death. And these women say, our trauma does not define us anymore because we have discovered what healing looks like. And it looks like honesty and faithfulness and kindness and bravery and trust. So they say we don't have to be trapped in the past in those tired old stories about who's in charge, who gets the most votes, who can kill the most people or bomb the most cities or tell the most convincing lies. That day is done and we will no longer seek the living among the dead. Isaiah prophesied it years before, they shall no longer hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So the women say it's time to tell a new story, and they know it's really an old story. It's the old, old story as that gospel hymn has it, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. That's a story told by another woman, actually, a woman from a different time. Her name was Kate Hankey. She lived in the 19th century, a privileged and pampered Anglican lady who scandalized her family when she started organizing Sunday schools in the slums of London and traveled to South Africa as a nurse and insisted that there was no life among the dead things of conventional, polite British religion. She wrote, I love to tell the story because I know tis true. It satisfies my longing, as nothing else would do. You will not find that hymn in the blue hymnal in the rack in front of you. Although, ironically, it was written by a pious Anglican She, well, She went a little off the rails, at least that's what we've said about her. She got swept up by John Wesley and his enthusiasms, and the Episcopal Church is still a little bit wary of that simple, heartfelt, honest, religious feeling. But my grandmother loved that hymn, maybe yours did too. It's a simple story that she tells, Kate Hankey. but it's not a simplistic story, it's not naive. It's a story that puts her among the mer one who has tasted death and who is coming back to tell us about it. She wrote, I love to tell the story, it will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. That's the original Easter sermon. That's all it is. It's a story that tears through every trauma and sanctifies every scar. Why do you seek the living among the dead? There is life in these women. There is life in the stories they tell us. And there is life in our stories, too. We are still here. I mean, can you, can you believe that we're sitting in this room after two years and we are doing Easter? We're witnessing the resurrection happening among us once again. Two years of pandemic, war on our horizon, so much suffering, so much fear, so much death. We come bearing our myrrh, bearing our spices. And what we discover is that the old stories are dead. New stories are being reborn. The world is changing. And these are the stories that I need to hear, because these are the stories that show me how to get back up again.